This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Working night engaged directly or indirectly in management of labor union. Disappeared from the site here at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant. Welcome, I'm Eric Sean. You're listening to Riddle, the podcast, my companion series of the Fox Nation show, Riddle, the search for James R. Hoffa. Teamsters leader Jimmy Hoffa disappeared on July 30th, 1975, and our episodes detail our Fox Nation investigation of the case. With us now, Jeff Schumacher, author, historian, and senior director of content at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. You know, the Mob Museum is a $42 million repository of the nation's history of organized crime, and it is right in the heart of downtown Las Vegas. Tell me about the allure and the legacy of Jimmy Hoffa, uh, known in, of, of course, basically for his disappearance, but he had a long history and a long history involved not just in labor, but also with the mafia. Well, absolutely. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about Jimmy Hoffa as it relates to our museum is, you know, he wasn't a mobster, right? I mean, he wasn't, and yet his name is as well known within that context as any of the most famous mobsters that we talk about in the museum. And, you know, it has to do with his connections to the mob through the Teamsters Union and, uh, you know, his his antagonism uh, with Robert Kennedy and ultimately, and most importantly, with his disappearance and, and murder. And, you know, this is one of the biggest stories of the 20th century. And uh, we uh, we get questions about it practically every day at the museum. Why do you think there is this fascination that continues to this day? Uh, we have the special on Fox Nation uh, and it's being watched by people who weren't even born when he disappeared on July 30th, 1975. You know, that's a good question. I, I think any time there's a mystery, uh, whether it's the JFK assassination or who killed Bugsy Siegel or who killed Jimmy Hoffa, um, you know, people love to speculate and love to look at what the, p- the potential options are. And, and it's like a game, right? I, I think for the average person, it's not like they're tragically sad that Jimmy Hoffa was killed. They don't know him, or especially, like you said, newer generations. But they want to know what happened. It's sort of human nature, I think, to want to know, you know, what really happened. You know, people make a lot of jokes, of course. And in, in a sense, as someone who I've talked with the Hoffa family, uh, his daughter, Jimmy Hoffa's daughter, Barbara Crancer, 80, 81 years old, retired judge in St. Louis. James P. Hoffa, uh, Jimmy's son, has his father's old job, the uh, desk yeah. in the what's called the Marble Palace, the Teamster headquarters on Capitol Hill. And he was, I mean, a loved one. And they have been living through this pain and sorrow. They they find the movie The Irishman about Frank the Irishman Sharon. They find that painful. Uh, there was a man, flesh and blood, behind what has become kind of a, a butt of jokes, which I, I feel is cruel, actually, and heartless, although I understand I understand it completely. Well, you know, it, you make a very good point, and that is that, you know, when Jimmy Hoffa was alive, uh, people loved him. 
Um, well, and, they, and many still did after. But the, the point is that he uh, had a way with the common working man and had um, an amazing ability to build support for what he was trying to accomplish with the Teamsters Union. And, you know, I mean, there were people, thousands and, and perhaps millions across the country who thought he was a great American person. And they uh, they didn't know probably a lot about, um, you know, his mob connections and what he was doing there uh, and some of the other corruption that was going on within the union. But they believed, and, and I think it was true, that Hoffer really did care about the, you know, the working teamster. And, you know, that's something maybe we've lost a little bit in the country is, those kind of sort of blue, you know, blue collar heroes. Yeah. And also uh, when you allude to mob uh, and, and mafia connections, you're talking about also about the central states pension fund, billion dollars yeah. in which every Teamster worker paid into it and they weren't paying out because they, they were all young. That really helped build the city in which you are in now uh, and where the mob museum is located, Las Vegas, by what? Uh, lending mob interests money to build casinos that every, almost every city, Chicago, New, uh, Kansas City, New York was not represented apparently. Almost every mob family in every city yeah. had a uh, casino or had interests? Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the, it was pretty simple. In the, from the late 50s to early 70s, uh, the Teamsters Union Central States Pension Fund was the primary funding mechanism for casino construction in Las Vegas. And, you know, there's a there's really a simple reason for that. There's two reasons. One, you know, the mob was had infiltrated the Teamsters and, and they were able to manipulate this money through Jimmy Hoffa and Frank Fitzsimmons. But also uh, these were not guys you could go down to the local bank and get a loan. It, there were two reasons for that. One, they were gangsters <laughs> uh, with criminal <laughs> records. Uh-huh. The, the other reason was that banks did not want to lend money to build casinos. There was a time, we've all forgotten it now, but there was a time when gambling was a sin, hmm. right? It was not something that, that you were supposed to be doing. And so casinos were seen as, you know, something that were nefarious and something you didn't, that legitimate people did not invest their money in. And so you needed to go somewhere to build these, these pleasure palaces. And it turned out that the Teamsters were able to provide the money. Would there be a modern-day Las Vegas were it not for Jimmy Hoffa? You know, I think that is a fair question, and I, I think that it would have taken longer to get where we are today, for sure, if he had not played ball with the mob at that time. Um, La- Las Vegas was on the verge in the 50s uh, of, of you know, exponential growth, and it had the potential to become what it is today. But it was held back by the very things we just talked about, which are, you know, the inability to, to build capital uh, to uh, finance these bigger and bigger resorts. And it was, um, it, was, it was essential that that money be available at the time to, uh, to build them. And, you know, you talk about some of the places that were built by Teamster money. You know, the Caesars Palace, probably the most famous of them all. And this became a themed resort that became the model for everything that came after and uh, if it weren't for the Teamsters, there would not have been a Caesars Palace in 1966. Well, and that seemed to really lead the way, at least in the public imagination. I mean, you talk about old Las Vegas. You think of Bugsy Siegel and, and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and the Rat Pack and the mob guys. And then there's new Las Vegas, the corporate uh, culture, which has become corporate America, Fortune 500 America. Uh, tell me about organized crime today. 
uh, and its strength, its weaknesses, and the difference between when Las Vegas was built? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big big question, but I would say I would summarize by saying that you know the, the traditional organized crime that we all think about when we think about the Hoffa era is largely gone from Las Vegas today. Um, corporations have uh, they own big 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 corporations own these casinos now. They have extensive accounting systems and you know all of the different protections in place through digital uh, you know means to uh, prevent the kind of skimming that, you know, was so prevalent back in the day. That's not to say there isn't small-time criminality in the casinos. I, I, I'm not saying that, but I don't think traditional organized crime has a foothold here any longer. Um, what you do have, though, are the same kinds of transnational organized crime that you have in other cities. You have human trafficking, right? You have, uh, you know, uh, cybercrime. You have uh, drug drug trafficking with the you know the Mexican drug cartels, the opiates and everything else, and that's happening in Las Vegas. But that's mostly outside of the casinos, and that's a different kind of organized crime than we than we think of uh, from back in the day. So the back in the day type style is basically largely gone. It's gone from Las Vegas. I I, I it is not gone for from New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, it's not gone from New Jersey or Philadelphia. It's not gone from Chicago. Uh, but I, I think it does not have the reach that it once did. You know, were, there was a time when uh, the FBI put together a map of the United States and they found that there were mafia families operating in, you know, like 36 different cities. Um, and, and I don't think you can say that today. I think you're really talking about four or five, maybe Boston, let's add them in there. It's like five, five cities in America that have the traditional organized crime that we remember. Uh, I guess now having a mob museum, a museum uh, kind of says it all about where they could stand. Tell me about the mob museum. It's in a beautiful building. What a former courthouse. Uh, and what is the mission of the museum? So when folks go to Las Vegas, they can uh, actually say, I went to a museum. Instead of just hanging well, out at the tables. You know, exactly. Uh, it's a great respite from the tables. I, uh, that's always what people tell us. Is they come to Las Vegas, they, they didn't expect to end up at a museum, but they, they never regret it uh, once they come. The, uh, the, it's, we're set in a, a historic building. It's, it's one of the oldest buildings in Las Vegas, which is kind of funny for people back east. But it opened in 1933 <laughs> during the construction of Hoover Dam. And it was the first federal courthouse and post office in Las Vegas. It's an old, you know, it's a, a, a great building. Uh, it's been preserved and, a be- you know, to look at the way it did when it opened the stores. On the second floor, we have a courtroom. And this is where we hold a lot of our public programs. And it's very majestic. It's also, by the way, where one of the Kefauver hearings was held in 1950. Uh, Estes Kefauver was mm-hmm. the Tennessee senator who investigated organized crime uh, famously, you know, live television coverage of the hearings in New York, um, and uh, really one of the first times when you saw that kind of live coverage on television of anything. And uh, and Estes Kefauver became so famous from these hearings that he ran for president twice, and uh, probably could have won the second time. And um, and anyway, uh, so that's a historical part of our building. The uh, museum opened in 2012. And it was really the brainchild of a man named Oscar Goodman, who uh, people who follow mm-hmm. mob history know was a defense attorney for the mob here in Las Vegas, uh, representing 
you know, Tony Spilatro and Lefty Rosenthal from Chicago, which is the basis for the movie Casino. And Oscar played himself in that movie. But when he was mayor of Las Vegas later, yes, uh, Las Vegas elected a, a mayor who was a mob defense attorney. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. and served three terms uh, admirably. Uh, he came up with the idea of uh, this building uh, becoming a museum and that it would be a museum focused on the history of organized crime in America. And when we first, uh, pr- when he first proposed this, there was some skepticism, like, well, hey, we don't want to glorify the mob. Uh, we don't want to glorify crime. And, you know, Oscar was, that was not Oscar's intention. But one of the things he did very cleverly is when they created a committee to oversee the, this project, he brought in law enforcement people to be on the, pa- be on the committee to, you know, give it the, uh, the credence that it was going to be a balanced report. It was a balanced story. It's going to certainly talk about the history of organized crime, but it also is going to talk about how law enforcement combated organized crime. And so that has been our mission from the beginning, to tell a balanced story, to uh, make sure that law enforcement and its efforts to bring down the mob is just as prominent as our descriptions of what the mob was up to. What type of exhibits do you have? Our uh, exhibits cover uh, really the the full history of organized crime in America from the 1800s with immigration uh, to the United States, Uh, you know, the the Irish and uh, Eastern European Jews and Italians and others coming to the United States, settling in, you know, highly urbanized areas like New York and Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland and so forth. And, And some of those individuals in those ghettos you know, looking for a shortcut to the American dream, right? And others, you know, absolutely law-abiding, working their way through it. But those who uh, descended into crime often gathered together and, and organized in a way that we had never been seen before, and thus the rise of organized crime. Uh, we have a whole exhibit on the Prohibition era. Certainly it was a huge boost to organized crime in America when we outlawed liquor. That was, everybody wanted it, and, and uh, somebody needed to provide it, and the mob was the ones were the ones to do that. And then uh, we moved through the years, through up through uh, you know the 60s and 70s, when you started seeing the federal government really ramp up its efforts to fight organized crime. Up through the 90s, with the RICO use of the RICO Act to crack down on the mob, uh, through John Gotti going to prison, and then. We transitioned into the modern era with, you know, the look at the Mexican cartels and the cybercrime and all the things we see today. So it's a it's sort of a, a chronological history of the mob with a lot of little detours here and there to help you understand Las Vegas, help understand the skimming that occurred here. Um, you know, there's a whole section dedicated to what we call the mob's greatest hits, right? So people are fascinated by by the assassinations and other murders that occurred and and included in there is the the mysterious disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa mm-hmm. of course can you b- briefly describe you mentioned skimming what that was how much money did the mob families make and how do they do that well skimming uh very simply was the notion of of taking revenue off the top before taxes were assessed so um you know they would usually do it was a ca- casinos then especially were a cash business so you had quarters going into slot machines and you had dollars and fives and tens going on into the casino cages and onto the tables. And this money then went back to the count room 
And a percentage of that, you know, the guys, the, the, the mob guys would take a percentage of that off the top and, and it would never be recorded. It would never be part of the accounting. And that money would be taken in and transported back to Kansas City or Chicago or Cleveland or New York or wherever the other the mob families were that were benefiting from this. And, the, you know, uh, some people I say, well, that was a victimless crime, right? Well, the downside is that that was uh, taxable income that could, those the tax revenues could have gone, gone toward building schools and mm-hmm. roads and everything else in Las Vegas. And instead, it went back to the Midwest or Miami or New York. And did that and so Nevada lost out? Did that did that basically then end with the corporate takeovers? That it did, and you know there were there were the, the Nevada Gaming Control Board, the regulators of the gambling mm-hmm. industry, really started ramping up their efforts in the '70s and '80s, and they they rooted out this uh, this skimming, and they were able to discover the discrepancies, and they had sources, you know, informants and so forth, and they were able to bring down the skimmers. And when corporations took over, that it, you know, it, it it was made it very difficult to skim. Interestingly, um, you know, I think these mob guys were just greedy because mm. owning a casino was a profit center in itself. So you could have made money, plenty of money, just being a legitimate business. <laughs> but they needed just a little more, and so that's where the skimming came in, and and. And that's how that's what brought them down too. Wow, that's fast. You're right. That's fascinating. If they had just run it the way it's run today, mm-hmm. the house always wins. I guess they say they would have done fine. But instead, the mob being the mob, they just grabbed the bundles of money. That's it. I think that's the bottom line. Oh, Jeff Schumacher, I thank you, senior director of content at the Mob Museum. You're down on Stewart Avenue. I guess near yep. the near the Golden Nugget. So uh, for those folks, and everyone go at some point or the other gets through Las Vegas. Uh, it is certainly worth the visit, and I'm so glad you joined us. And that there is an institution to academically and in a scholarly way examine both sides of organized crime and its uh, role in history here in our country. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, for for talking about the museum. We're very proud of it. You have been listening to Riddle, the podcast. Watch our show, Riddle, the search for James R. Hoffa, on our streaming service, Fox Nation, and news reports on the Fox News Channel. Thank you for listening. I'm Eric Shaw.